I'm Robert from San Diego, California. I'm Dan from Portland, Oregon. I'm Tommy from Indiana. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Janet Varney, in for Papa Jesse Thorne. My guest is none other than Bruce McCullough. For years, he's been a member of the amazing Canadian comedy troupe Kids in the Hall. They had a television show in the 90s, of course, the movie Brain Candy that was released in 96, and the awesome recent miniseries Death Comes to Town. On his own, Bruce has released two comedy albums, he's directed films like Superstar and Stealing Harvard, and he's collaborated with Bill Burr, Norm MacDonald, and many others. Well, we'll talk about all of that, but first, let's hear this clip from Kids in the Hall with Bruce appearing as Gavin, a grade school boy who's eager to have interactions with nonplussed adults. Here he approaches a man painting a chair in his front yard. So you're painting a chair, hey? Yeah, that's what I'm doing, all right. That's why I stopped. I see. So I suppose you want me to paint your chair? No, thanks. I'll do it fine. Oh, okay. There's this kid in my class, and she lives on her own without any parents or guardians, and she's eight. And she took the number off her house so the cops can't find her to take her to jail, and also she took off the mailbox so they can't send her a letter to say she's in trouble and ask to go to jail, and she's eight, like I say. Eight, that's young. Yeah. And in the garage is a skeleton of a coyote. And it's one of those real valuable ones. And that guy from the news already tried to buy it three times. Really? Yeah. So I suppose you want me to paint your chair. No, I'm doing fine, thanks. Okay. These guys... smoke. They smoke? Yeah. Wow. And they're bad. And you know what? They taught a dog to smoke. Do you believe that? Sure, I believe that. Yeah, well, it's true. And they taught him to bake for cigarettes. Door to door. So right away, when this poor little devil would, would ring your doorbell with his gnaws, you'd know right away what he wanted. So you'd give him a cigarette, and he'd take it back to these guys who waited by the fence to smoke. And they didn't care who saw them smoke. These guys sure smoked. Uh, Bruce McCullough, you guys know, of course, as a member of Kids in the Hall, but he's also released two comedy music CDs, Shame Based Man and Drunk Baby <laughs> Project. He created the ABC series Carpoolers and has written and directed several films, including Dog Park and Comeback Season. Uh, he also has a young, impetuous standard poodle named Mabel. That's right. Um, I'm going to be a little kooky, and I, I thought maybe it would be fun if we started out by talking about music. Oh, well, what a great idea. Rather than saying, hey, how was Kids in the Hall? Right. Um, so just to find a way into that, uh, it seems to me this day, these days that there's sort of an assumed link between alternative comedy and music, you know, Eugene Merman and, and David Cross, uh, people like that are on record labels like Sub Pop, um, which are of course also home to indie darlings like The Shins, Band of Horses, Fleet Foxes. But for me, you were sort of one of the first comics that I thought of, like you sort of bridged that gap. From my point of view, how did that come about? Well, I th- I think it's also I've you know I was never a comedy fan. I think, uh, you know, a lot of nerds 
you know, I'm a nerd as well, but there's a lot of nerds in comedy, but I, I didn't think I was a nerd when I was a kid. I was into, the thing that fueled me was rock music. And I think there's something anarchic about it. And listen, I didn't like only good rock music and, you know, punk, you know, I lived, actually, I'm old enough to have lived through the original punk era and got the first Sex Pistols 45 in a record store, you know, I was 12 years old or whatever, and it blew my mind. But so that was the thing uh, that sort of fueled me in my uh, drunken high school days. And I think something in in music that was counterculture uh, made me think that the world didn't have to be the way it was described to me. So based on what you just said, it can I assume you were an angry youth? I was definitely an angry youth. And I was, you know, as almost all people from comedic backgrounds, I had a what we like to laughingly call a terrible childhood. And, um, you know, I, I was an angry young man. And so I wasn't a typical comedy nerd where I was like, well... Acting out the sketches in my room, I was more drinking and fighting and trying to sneak into clubs and uh, doing stuff like that. Did you also have a relationship to music that was a little bit more soulful on the side of, you know, oh, those lyrics, he really understands? Well, I, a little bit. Like, I, you know, it, I was indiscriminate a little bit. Like, I, you know, I liked Deep Purple. They were really good, and I like Slave. But, you know, when the time came, I got into Quadrophenia, like, I, you know, and wore the jean jacket and walked around and looked at every picture, you know, in the Quadrophenia booklet. And so I think The Who, which is the band that I, I loved, is sort of the Lonely Boys band. Did you play an instrument? Did you start playing guitar around that time? Or did you... uh, badly. Um, my dad was actually a, a jazz cat, and his first, his first, his Hofner bass, his Beatle bass, uh, he gave to me, and I sort of thumped out the Daves I know and other songs. But somehow I just, I, I also thought guys in bands were sort of silly, like they jumped around and, and that. And I, I just, that my ego wasn't, right like that like I just and I don't think there was I don't think there were bands then that I could be in like if REM had been around then I would have I would have understood a kind of or you know they might be giants which is you know the are the funniest people in the world um there's sort of some irony and some but there was you know rock was pretty stupid you know when I was growing up Speaking of music and bands, you have described the kids in the hall as being five lead guitarists. Right. And I'd love for you to connect that. Well, I think that's obviously not a musical phrase as much as it is an ego, a a conversation of our egos, which is, and people who have dealt with us, um, they go, you guys are driving us crazy. Like, because usually a a group of people, a a couple of them speak and make the decisions. And we all... You know, we all want to play guitar, and nobody wants to be Bonham and take care of the floor. You know, we all we all think, like, we don't think we're the best, but we all need to be heard or something. And so, you know, we're not, we're five leaders. 
Um, and so when, because you didn't uh, necessarily dive into the world of performing on stage in band form, was there a time during Kids in the Hall when you thought, I feel like I'm as cool as a rock star? Like, this is probably how they feel. Oh, it, you know, it's a very, it's a very scary question, too, because then that makes it seem like I, I'm a, feel like a, a rock star. But, um, you know, one of the smartest things we ever did, and... Uh, you know, there was a, a house band we had called Shadowy Man on a Shadowy Planet, which is the coolest, you know, weird surf music in the world. And they, I actually went to high school with those guys. They were two years older than me, and they were the cool guys. And they were actually the guys who said, here, you better listen to this, and you better listen to that. And when you listen to Johnny Winter, then you should listen to, you know, John Mayo or whatever it was. And so they made us cool. And it, it, in a context, and I, we loved their rock. So it was like when we started the show it's like they have to be our band it was just one of those organic things they played live for us when we did tapings and we used their music uh you know when we do tours or something so our rock energy came from them and because of them we had rock energy and i don't know if we were rock stars i mean to be a rock star is a stupid thing anybody who wants to be a rock star is an idiot i think um uh but you know i I have felt the momentum of a crowd and what it's like to have a fairly large crowd cheer f- for you. Or, you know, I, I remember when we were doing our sort of our first American shows, it was in uh, Detroit and there's 500 uh, kids there, people my age, they were kids then. <laughs> and, and at the end of the show, they rushed the stage and it's like, okay, what are you going to do now? <laughs> it's like, what, what? What did you do? I think we just thanked them and shook their sh- all each and every one of their hands and left. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, sort of a shadow. But thing. no crowd surfing. No crowd surfing, no. You didn't face plant into a bunch of screamers. I should have. It's the sound of young America. I'm Janet Varney in for Papa Jesse Thorne. I'm talking about music with Bruce McCullough. He's one of the members of the Canadian comedy troupe Kids in the Hall. Over the course of his career, he's also put out a couple of albums. Here's a song from the first one called Shame Based Man. And the song is Grade 8. I did all my acid in grade 8. That was the old days when acid had names, flavors, as it were. Window pane, orange sunshine. But then things shifted. Acid stopped having names, and chips became flavored. That's progress. I can remember a time when you could get orange sunshine, window pane, or purple microdot, but the only chips you could get were plain or in some stores, ripple. Cut to the chase. I did all my acid. And so when you decided to cut a CD, your first, what had you had people suggesting to you along the way because of some of the stuff that you were doing on the show? Hey, you should you should put cobble together some of these and write some new ones. You should do this. Or was that something that you organically kind of came to on your own? Well, I I I I wanted to do it, and I I had actually just been approached by a guy. I had a few, a few approaches, actually, when I was first doing, like, we should put out Dave's I Know as a single. And I was like, no. And then I had a pretty cool guy named Tim Summer who uh, had, uh, did he have Presidents of the United States of America? He had Hootie and the Blowfish, and it was like, he was a pretty good A&R guy. Uh, and he kind of approached me and nurtured me. And then he knew I'd done one-man show somehow, and 
he came up and hung out and like, let's do this. And I was like, it's not all about the Daves I know, you know. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's how it happened. But I remember, you know, I had a pretty successful TV show, or we did, when I was doing the record. But I remember being in a studio and going, you know, having laid down a record or laying down a record and going, this is way cooler. This is way bigger. This is way more important than doing a TV show. Because as a kid, I never, like, I never wanted to be on a record or I never wanted to be a rock star. But I never wanted to have a TV show either. So to have a record, you know, was pretty great. And I actually, when I did my first uh, record, Shame Based Man, I was sitting having coffee at some point in Toronto and I looked and there was like a kind of a young the young kind of weird girl with daddy issues that tends to like me. And she had my, and I worked really hard on my, on my booklet of weird, you know, uh, photos of like me with a bowling trophy and me getting married in a fake wedding and people thought I was married. It was just conceptual and stuff. And she was like looking through the booklet like I had, how I would with a Mott the Hoople, you know, record of years gone by. And she was like devouring every little bit of, of line I'd had and who played what and stuff. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. So let's get into writing a little bit. Uh, at any given time, it seems to me that you were always working on multiple projects. Um, is that, did that happen because you just happen to have different irons in the fire? Or is that a way that you like to work where you're not just focused on one thing and one thing alone that you're able to sort of pick and choose and walk away from something, but still work on something else? Well, I think I'm obsessive. And, you know, um, I really, the thing I wanted to be more than anything, and that's why I, I'm no, I've never been a, a rock star in my heart or a star in my, or a TV star, any of that in my heart. I've always been a writer. My thing has always been, if something gets a laugh that I wrote for Mark McKinney or whoever, or it's, it's bigger. It hits me in a, in a sweeter way than if I go get a laugh or I score with the audience or something like that. But I've always, you know, I was, you know, Kerouac and all that stuff that and Hemingway and you know the all the beats and all those people the rock stars of the literary world they you know they, they obsessed me in my youth and Henry Miller and all that reading that stuff and I think I really fashioned myself as uh, a guy who would sit that had his own world and I would sit down in my weird way and write my weird things and write poems and cartoons and then I started doing sketch comedy, but I guess it could have been something else, you know. It could have been some weird theater if I'd lived in New York, you know, or something. So I, I think I've always written a lot, and I, I sort of sometimes can't help myself with writing. And I think the other part of the answer of that is an ego question, that as soon as I was part of the creation of a, of a wonderful group, which fulfilled all my dreams in a creative way in a sense— I didn't want to be defined by that. And if we were doing the kids in the hall, then I needed to do my show in the Tarragon Extra Space on the months off. And uh, I might not come back uh, for the third season because I have to, you know. And I think it was as much, I've, I've always kept consumptive. Maybe it's like treading water because I'm, you know, as we all secretly don't think we're any good. I just want to keep working and writing and, and doing and uh, um, I'm okay. Aren't I, mummy? So I think there's a little bit of that. But I, you know, I can't help but love ideas and think about them at night sometimes. I'm trying to think of anything more juxtaposing than 
going from that to writing for SNL in terms of going from something that was so uniquely you guys and born so much out of a little bit of a separation that you might have had geographically and culturally from the stuff that was around uh, at the same time or before to then go into an environment where this show has established itself for X amount of years is in the heart of New York city is referenced and copied and is sort of referencing and copying itself. It's been around so long. Right. I, was that hard? Um, well, I, well, yes, I, I was, in case you don't know, I was a writer for Saturday Night Live one year. Um, it was really hard, I think, and it was, it was really good for, it was one of the defining things in, I think, the, the troupe working for as long as it did, is I always knew I'd be a writer, and I was actually ready with a writing package in case anything ever happened, and I wrote all the time, and, you know, I, with my little t- t- type, select a typewriter and all that stuff. And when I went there, the Kids in the Hall was functioning then, and we, we you know, um, and we'd, come out from Calgary to make it in Toronto and then got sort of plucked by uh, Saturday Night Live after a, a quite a good theater show that we did. And I thought I would find a lot of people like me, who, and not just hardworking or talented or whatever, but who had the same sensibility, and I didn't. I just found it was just a different thing. And I, you know, it sent me back, it, it was like a, you know, sent me back to my wife, <laughs> like half, <laughs> happy after a bad, you know, yeah. a, a, a affair. And not because the people weren't great or whatever. It's this, just the structure of, I mean, we were always just making it up as we went. And, you know, that's always been any success I've had, even, you know, when I, was, um, I directed Superstar with Molly Shannon and Will Ferrell. And it was like, this is just, we just make this up and we get to do it. And the more you can always remind yourself of that spirit that isn't really serious and, you know, I forget that constantly because I'm in the world of business now as, as much as I'm in the world of comedy that, you know, Saturday Night Live just didn't seem so much like my gang, even though, uh, you know, I've, I have loved Lorne Michaels and we wouldn't be around without him. And he's a, still a good friend. And I watch him get a haircut every two years still. Um, it, it just it wasn't the kids in the hall. You know, we're five losers in a room eating Kentucky Fried Chicken trying to come up with an idea. We are not being, you know, put a Versace suit jacket on that's going to look really good on the update desk. <laughs> you know, they seem similar, but they're the when it's all put together, it seems similar, but it's not. Okay, let's take a listen to something from Bruce McCullough's days on SNL. This is a short film about going on a vacation and watching Eraserhead. Yeah. I walk around the house drunk. I'm wearing women's slippers. Man, I must be a sight to behold. But I'm not quite sure. I lost my mirror. And the pizza I ordered offers no reflection. I walk around the house. I think about people who have fouled me and therefore should die. But then I think of all the interesting crafts you can make with toilet paper rolls. Once a year, I get drunk in a darkened house for a week. I get drunk and watch Eraserhead. As I think we all do sometimes, it's my vacation. Once a year, I have a little black More with Bruce McCullough after a break. It's the sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI Public Radio International. Loud, industrial. 
Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by VG Kids, printers of T-shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble-rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at vgkids.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Janet Varney, in for Papa Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bruce McCullough, a member of the Canadian sketch comedy troupe Kids in the Hall. He's also a writer and director. Now, you have also produced, we've talked about directing a little bit, but in terms of directing and producing some other projects that maybe you didn't necessarily write and aren't in, um, are we allowed to talk about the Bill Burke Kevin Hart project? How did you get involved with that? Um, and actually, before that, you also did the Norm Macdonald show. I so those, those feel similar to me. Can you talk about both of those? Well, you know, and I, I'm always a... Tr- it's like when I did Superstar for Molly Shannon. It was... Uh, I looked at it, and it was so weird and funny. And I thought, oh, my God, who's going to do that? They, nobody can do that but me. I, no, no, I'm busy now. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I am... And doing a movie with Tom Green as well um, is... Talented people, I just, you know, you yourself run a sketch fest in San Francisco. You you know the attraction to, to, to people. And half the time I spend in my own lonely upstairs office, sometimes with uh, my assistant, Neil, who my son, my four-year-old son, Otis, often fires as a running joke, um, <laughs> thinking about what I'm thinking about. But then, and it's kind of lonely and it's kind of beautiful, and then ever so often you see someone... And you go, I want to partner with that person. I want to help that person. I want to rub up against that person. And it's what I learned in the Kids in the Hall, that it's so fun to talk about stuff and to joke and have fun. And, yeah, that's, you know, two great comedians, uh, Kevin Hart and Bill Burr. Um, I saw them. I, they were going to do a show, Comedy Central. And it's like, I have to do this. It's like, well, it'll kind of take you out of network season. And it's not that much money. And, you know, and it's like, well, I really want to do it. I just... You're right. I can't do it. I can't do it. Okay, I'm going to do it. And so I, that was a single camera show that I did, and it, you know, it just didn't end up getting on the air for whatever reason. But, um, and same with Norm Macdonald. I did a, a pilot for him as well. I'm just attracted, also to funny people because I'm not, I'm not thinking about things I'm going to be in, um, and I don't have any, don't feel like I want to act. I'll act with you or the kids in the hall. That's kind of um, my, my my stuff. So it's, it's good ever so often to have the power of people that you really like. So in terms of seeing people that you really get excited about, obviously sometimes you see them and the opportunity doesn't arise to do something with them. But what was it about Kevin Hart and Bill Burr and Norm and Molly? What are, could you just talk a little bit about what excited you about those people and what made you want to well, get involved? It's, it's quite easy, actually. And, it's, and it goes back to music again, which is good. Full circle. It's soul. And, you know, I remember there was a comedy troupe that I'd been asked about uh, to work with. And I talked to Kevin. I wasn't sure. And he said, well, I don't know if they have soul. And I said, that's it. That's it. And, you know, I just met on something today. And it's like, that person has soul. I want to work with you because you have soul. And whatever that is, you know, the kids in the hall have never been about success. Saturday Night Live is, they're all people from weird little families in the Midwest and all that. But that show is a bit about success. And... 
we have soul and obviously all the people or most of the people on Saturday Night Live have soul too but may you know is that there's something about people who are kind of weird and wounded and lovely and um you know human who actually you know there's I did stand up for a while too there's a there's certain I love stand up comedians uh, half of them and the other <laughs> half because they're kind and curious and and interesting and then the other ones just want to make a joke and just wait for you to stop talking and just want to cut you down and watch TV and smoke a joint and 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 make jokes at the TV and so I'm not attracted to the people who want to win and score I'm attracted to like people who just can't help themselves and that's certainly like Bill Burr who's obsessed with all the things he's obsessed with and and Kevin Hart who's just like a weird sweet guy who sort of acts like a star but he knows that he's full of shit. and you know you just that's you know I didn't get involved in this you know at the young age to to make money and I've done I'm so ha- I'm so lucky that I actually have made bought my house with my imagination but I just, I just can't help myself sometimes. And it's those people that I am attracted to. So I'm getting the impression that you do not go out to a lot of calls and auditions for other people's projects. No, I, I've, I've only auditioned, I think a couple times. And, you know, when I was doing my first feature dog park and all these people would come in for me and I had auditioned, I think twice for, for things before that. And I realized, wow, I'm, I'm terrible at acting. And the other thing is, actors are supposed to know their lines. These people would all come in and they'd have 15 pages memorized. And so I did it a couple times. And I'm a tough guy. Like I, you know, I, I framed houses in the winter. I've run marathons. I, you know, I've birthed children. My own, out of my own body. And, <laughs> but I... And I'm tough and fearless, and I can take no, and I can take being fired by someone phoning me from a corporate jet. I've had all that happen, and I can, I can rock with it. I, I just can't sit on a couch, you know, next to Bob Goldthwait, and I would go, like, you should hire him. He's really funny, and I don't know. My connection to material is usually from myself in, outside. Like, I, I, I would, I'll read a script... And I'll go, I, I don't understand it. I can say these lines, but maybe somebody else should say these lines. I, <laughs> I don't know. So, and the process of, you know, when the, when the kids in the hall were sort of first over, I came here for a little while and rented a Ford Neon and had a little place and I'd go around and try to go to the odd meeting and I'd get lost and, and I had like two or three auditions and then it's just like, no, I can't do this. I won't be able to forgive myself if I don't ask this question, and I am hoping that there are some awesome nerdy ladies out there who will be glad that I asked Give this it up, question. Nerdy ladies, please tell me about the process of booking your role on Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> yes, I was on Anne of Green Gables the sequel. I still get the, the checks, the nice gold checks, hit my floor every few months. Oh. Well, uh, the Kids in the Hall has started, and our casting director. Diane Pauly, um, was also casting that. And that, I went, and I did audition for that. But I, I went in and I said, and I had nine days, which was great, but it's like, I only have a few lines. I, th- I think I'll just read them all in a row. And I just don't think I should stand up. I'll just read them to you once and see if you like it or not. And I just read these weird lines and 
said thank you. I didn't realize that you weren't that you were supposed to be dismissed or asked questions or something. So it's like I came in like a gunslinger. I said, "There's only nine lines. I know it's nine days, but I'm just going to read them all." And then, you know, it's sort of like intervention. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. <laughs> you're going to say what you're going to say, and then we're done. Um, and uh, and they they gave it to me, and I. I learned how hard it is to be an actor, being, being in a little tiny cubby all day waiting for my line, and there's nothing worse in the world, as you must know, um, having had a few bit parts yourself, dear, indeed, um, indeed. is nothing's worse than one line, mumbling through the line of going off to, something about going off to the wedding, and I'm reciting it, reciting it, and then they call me, okay, Slate, we're going, you gotta go, you gotta write a you got to ride a cart and say that line. It's like, okay, what? I don't know how to ride a cart. Like, <laughs> horses are drawing this cart, and I'm saying this line, and we got it, and you're done. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is a terrible life. I'm so glad <laughs> that I got to ask about that. I just love that you've worked with some of the most amazing people in the world in show business, and all I care about is you telling me the story of Anne of Green Gables. Um I, it's definitely, I think, fair to say that a lot of artistic folks living in Los Angeles have the sort of love-hate relationship with it. And I know that you, the grouping you in with the kids temporarily, uh, some of them now live back in Toronto. A couple of you live here. Some some people go back and forth. Do you feel like you have that sort of love-hate relationship? And if you do, is it enhanced by your Canadianism? Love-hate relationship with Los Angeles? With Los Angeles. You know, when I when when we were doing the kids in the hall, I said I'm never moving there. I'm not going to move there. Why do I have to move there? And like I found myself coming here, and you know I'm a staunch Canadian, but when I got here, I thought, oh, give it up. It's it's fantastic here. It's people are working here. There you know there are hawks flying in the sky, and I'm you know I'm not a guy who does that much like i you know i have dinner i watch a show i go to sleep maybe go for a drink have you know uh, and i can do that anywhere so why not do it here and i you know i have i'm a family man so it's it's pretty easy i don't have some weird thing about like why am i here and it's soulless because everybody in most people in the business are quite nice and they work really hard and there's lots of good people and there's a lot of compromise that you have to make and it's a business and sometimes people will will you know you fire you over the phone or fire you by telling your manager or whatever and or not pick up your thing and you still get paid and all, all that and you know there's some bad things about it but i i like that it's an industry you know and it was great to do uh, a canadian miniseries to do kids in the hall there and i'm gonna uh, hope to do some more stuff but i you know i'm a grunt i'm a guy who worked at uh canada dry warehouse i just want to work and this is where the work is and it happens to be actually beautiful and every day as i get my newspaper uh every morning at noon no every morning when i get my newspaper <laughs> i i pick it up and i look at my house i go wow this is pr pretty cool well you know it's funny you would say that because i and i don't mean to be the person who's like, hey, listeners, I've been to Bruce McCullough's house. But in the interest of tying things up in a little bit of a circle, I will say about that, and that it doesn't surprise me you have that relationship to Los Angeles and to your home in particular, because you have one of those wonderful Los Angeles, hilly, canyony homes that honestly feels, when I go over there, it feels to me like what I imagine the Laurel Canyon homes of the 60s right. with the musicians being like. It feels like a safe, beautiful, 
inspiring place where you can create and you bought it with your imagination and that you're you are then able to kind of give back to your imagination in that regard that it's this wonderful environment that kind of cultivates great ideas well and you know when i when i first came here you know it was tim summer the guy who who had signed me at, at atlantic and he was kind of saying like if you think of los angeles as just being about show business and the film and TV business, it's kind of doing it a disservice. And when you start to think about, you know, I'm obsessed with Laurel Canyon and all the having, you know, uh, just read the book about the Eagles and all that stuff and all those, all those people who are around there, that it's, it's the music scene that made this, this amazing place. And you can be, you know, a lot of great writers from Hemingway to everybody have been eaten up and chewed up by uh, Hollywood in some way. But California, Los Angeles... As a place, uh, for me, it's the it's the best place in the world. Be- and and those people, all of them, with their creativity and their spirit, and you know, not just that music, but sort of a counterculture, a lot, you know, an, a counterculture army. Um, when you think about that, that what it's built upon, then you, you can love it here. Uh, I think that's a wonderful way to round up the interview, and I can't thank you enough for spending a little time with me and with the listeners of The Sound of Young America. Bruce McCullough, you are amazing. Thank you. Listeners rock. Bruce McCullough is a member of the Kids in the Hall, plus a writer, producer, and director. You can find him online at brucio.com. That's B-R-U-C-I-O dot com. Well, everybody, that is it for The Sound of Young America this week. I've been your host, Janet Varney. I can't believe I got asked to do this. I feel like I've gotten away with something, but I have to tell you, it was an absolute joy. Thank you so much to Jesse and to the rest of the gang at Maximum Fun and at Sound of Young America. Uh, That includes our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Our music is by Dan Wally. And you can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can find past episodes of this show, as well as several other awesome programs, such as Jordan Jesse Go, Judge John Hodgman, and My Brother, My Brother, and Me. Thanks again for listening. That's it for The Sound. <laughs>